Welcome to episode 251 of The Sleeper in the Bust. I am Paul Spore, and it is your Tuesday edition. I am flying solo with Eno out on vacation. I will, or I should say I should, have a guest for Thursday. I, I, I don't have one a thousand percent booked yet, so saying that could end up being wrong if I was uh, definitive, but I feel confident. I feel confident that I will have a guest on Thursday, so you won't just have to listen to me go on and on. But today, you have to. Sorry. But it's going to be good. It's going to be really good. Obviously, uh, with the All-Star break happening, we don't have, you know, games to talk about. There isn't a ton of news to talk about. So I came up with a little, you know, central topic of something that I that I want to talk about. And basically what I'm going to do is go over a handful of pitchers uh, that I think could be huge in the second half. And that's, that's a little bit vague. And you're going to hear some of the names and be like, wow, Paul, great call, dude. Uh, here's the thing. I was looking it over from last year, 2014. And the top 30 ERA leaders in the first half, of those 30, only nine of them were able to repeat in the second half. And so the the, the point is, is that we're going to get some turnover there. And, and you know, top 30 in ERA is pretty substantial. It's usually about a three ERA or below both of these last couple of years. So, I mean, these are the cream of the crop. And so with only nine of them repeating, and I didn't go back a ton of years to see how sticky it is from year to year. I just kind of looked at it. I'm sure it's very similar uh, to maybe last year where just a handful are, are able to kind of carry it over. Those are the, those are your dream seasons. Most guys, you know, even if you, you are in the first uh, first half top 30, there, you don't necessarily have to become a complete garbage bag to fall out. I mean, like I said, it's a three ERA that that's kind of capped there. So you can have a very strong second half with a 335 ERA and a bunch of strikeouts, uh, you know, over a whole ton of innings, and it would still be, you know, outside of the top 30 probably. So that's what I'm looking at here. Some guys who could jump into that top 30. Maybe they already finished there in the first half, and I'm thinking that they're going to stick. Or some guys who are coming from outside and jumping into it. And uh, these are going to be guys that uh, you should maybe be able to, to to acquire. Not necessarily cheaply. I'm not going to say buy low. Not everybody is a, a buy low. It's very difficult to actually buy low. So uh, they're just uh, attainable, I think. I think you can go out and buy them maybe for a price that isn't necessarily necessarily commensurate with somebody who would be a top 30 ERA level kind of guy. Um, the very first guy I'm going to talk about, yeah, I think he he is somebody who's still going to cost you an arm and a leg, but but you're paying that to get kind of the ace level season, so it's all right. Uh, before I kind of, get, kind of get into that, I really want to talk about how much I actually love the home run derby. I, I think that was, uh, you know, a popular opinion and I loved it. You know, I, I didn't follow it on Twitter. I actually went over to a friend's and watched it. We did a little pool with it. The head-to-head was amazing. The timing was amazing. Uh, or, or, or that it was timed was amazing. The actual timing probably could still use some work if I did have one one issue with it. It was it was that uh, the four minutes is probably too long. And, and they only got to four minutes because of the weather uh, threat caused them to change it from five. Well, that ended up being a godsend. First off, the weather held off brilliantly and then four minutes just ended up being better. But I, I think they probably either need to uh, go like four minutes, three minutes, three minutes, or really four, three, two would probably be all right. I mean, if you think about it, the two minutes, uh, you know, f- final there with these guys, first off, they're already pretty dang tired. So I, I don't think, I definitely don't think you need to do four, four, four. 
however you want to change it, um, maybe maybe smaller to start so that they still have juice for the final. If you want to do that, fine. Then two, three, four minutes per round or something like that. Uh, the bonus should probably be a little bit tougher to get to. 425 feet uh, for a home run seemed to automatically earn that 30-second bonus. And I don't think there was a single round where it wasn't issued. So, I, you know, I'm fine with the idea of it, but maybe 450 uh, would, would be something better. And it was reached a couple times, but I don't think it was every single round that a guy hit a 450-foot uh, shot. So, overall, really great. Uh, I'm very impressed that they found a way to revamp this and, and make it worthwhile again. I really enjoyed it. Hope you got a chance to watch. Uh, it definitely wasn't like previous years, you know. Some people complained about the telecast. I, I kind of did, too, because they weren't really talking about the home runs, it seemed, very often. Uh, you know, it seemed like these, these bombs would just go out while they're finishing some story about, you know, having a burger with one of the one of the players or something. It, it was weird. But at the same time, you know, usually we're complaining about Berman saying back, 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 back every single time that it happens too. So, you know, there was a trade-off. He hardly did any of that. And, you know, the trade-off was that they were just going to kind of keep going through and doing their talks during the homers. So all in all, that was fine. Like I said, because I was watching it with a group, we're talking anyway. We're not really hearing it. We're just waiting for the monster shot. So, you know, I know it's not fantasy relevant, but I just kind of want to talk about it because I actually really, really enjoyed it. And uh, maybe I enjoyed it a little bit more because I did have the winner in our little pool. We had a, we had a four-man pool where we drafted uh, two guys apiece, and it was just the winner take all. We weren't accumulating the home run totals or anything like that. Um, and I had the third pick, and I couldn't believe that I got Todd Frazier. I was so geeked on that. Uh, it was a snake draft, so then the other guy took two picks. I came back with Fielder. Uh, and just said, you know what, I'll get in the semifinals. I, I know that I am, you know, curbing my chances there. Um, and I, I could have gotten someone on the other side of the bracket and tried to meet in the finals, although not Jock. Uh, he was actually the second pick. So, um, you know, it turned out to be not a bad pick there. I went Pujols, Peterson, Frazier. And then I believe the fourth pick guy took both of Donaldson, Rizzo. So he kind of did the strategy even before I did. Then I went fielder and then um, – who was it facing each other? I I guess uh, Bryant went to the Peterson order. Yeah, they each faced each other in that first round there. I know you all don't care about that. But anyway, that was a lot of fun. Hope you all enjoyed that. I'm, I'm, I'll probably check out the All-Star game. I, you know, they're not making sweeping changes for that. It kind of is what it is. It's not great. Because, you know, I just I prefer a different style of baseball than than an all-star game level baseball. But it's really not all that bad. Uh, some of the complaints about the all-star game, I'm just like, really, is it is it really that bad or is it just kind of like a whatever event that isn't too bad? And on the field of all-star games, uh, it is still the best. I think that commercial where, you know, like it's the all-star game of all-star games. That that's true. It's still the best one. The NBA all-star game is hilariously ridiculous. I mean, they're not even Tending to play defense football you can't do it because you know you're not trying to get somebody killed out there you know coming over the middle for a catch in hawaii there he doesn't need to get laid out uh so i kind of get it with that they should probably do something different altogether because of the injury risk associated with that and uh the hockey one i'm not a big enough hockey fan to really comment on that i know that there's no real defense in that either but i'm not sure if that's necessarily a bad thing maybe it's fun to see all those goals so uh again i can't speak eloquently not on 
on that one necessarily. I have a lot more experience with the other three. So I'll be checking out tonight's game. You know, it's still baseball. Uh, maybe I'll have it on the iPad while playing MLB The Show, uh, something like that. You know, but it's it's still going to be baseball, and it's all we got for a few days. That's the that's the worst thing, folks, is that it's all we've got now for a couple days. I, I did tape the Futures game, so I'll probably watch that again. Uh, that was really exciting to watch. A lot of guys got to see there. Probably wait to talk about that until I have uh, Eno or Jason back or perhaps both and get some of their takeaways from it. Um, So that's why I didn't necessarily use it as a topic today. But, um, you know, we're going to be dry for a couple days. But like I said, I'll be back on Thursday with a guest. Let's dive into the main topic. All right. So I let you know at the outset kind of what I'm doing here. I'm talking about a handful of pitchers, and I say in a handful because I don't have the exact number in my head, and if it runs too long, maybe I'll cut a few off the back end. I think I got a list here of about uh, 10 or 12, so <clears throat> we'll see We'll see how it goes, and we'll, and we'll try to get to as many of them as possible, and again, the point here is I'm looking for guys who, who can have big second halves, finish in kind of the top 30, which is that first page on fan graphs of the ERA leaders. Uh, that's, you know, that that's that's elite level company there. Obviously, the guys at the very top are tremendous. But even when you start getting into the into the 20s uh, up to 30, the highest guy on there at, at, at 30 is Brett Anderson with a 317 ERA. Now, he's not necessarily elite, but a 317 ERA is, is still really good. Just above him is Matt Harvey at 307. Um, that's with the that's the qualified ERA starters right now that we're talking about. So we're looking for guys who've got a really good shot at either sticking in the top 30 for the second half or jumping into the top 30. Maybe they're showing some skills recently. Uh, Maybe they're going to be out there a little bit cheaper than they should be. It's kind of a case-by-case thing. But let's just start with the top guy. And and he's listed at the top here because he's clearly the best of this group. He'll he'll cost you the most to acquire. Uh, You know, and it makes sense. It's Madison Bumgarner. Uh, He's already, you know, for the season right now, he's 35th. So he's just on the outside looking in as it is, 35th. In ERA for Madison Bumgarner at 3.33, he's having a really strong season. Although I'm not sure that the perception uh, is necessarily there with him and with how good his season has been. Maybe because of that 9.33 ERA, he's also had some prominent blowups. San Diego ripped Bumgarner early in the year. Um, he went to Washington on the 4th of July and they crushed him. Philly has a five-run outing in, in there on him. He, I think he still went eight innings and. and 10 or 11 in that outing, but, uh, you know, giving up five runs to Philly, that stands out. So, you know, he's got three big earned run outings there, and they've kind of boosted up Madison Bumgarner's ERA uh, to that 333 level, which, again, isn't bad. You know, he actually had nine earned runs allowed in his first three outings uh, with three, four, and four strikeouts. Very un-Madison Bumgarner-esque. Uh, by the end of that, you know, it was one good, or one great, one bad, one okay start. These are his first three for Bumgarner. By the end of that, he had a 529 ERA, and like I said, hadn't eclipsed four strikeouts despite going seven innings in two of those outings. Since then, though, he's got a three ERA with 110 strikeouts and 102 innings. I mean, if you lop off those first three starts there, two against Arizona and the one in San Diego where they got him, that was back when San Diego was good for a couple weeks. Um, Since then, he's absolutely dominated. He's been vintage Bumgarner. He's been, you know, don't worry about last year uh, Bumgarner because everyone's, you know, they were concerned. I, I, you know, I was among them uh, that had some concerns about the workload that he put on last year. But, you know, I wasn't going overwhelmingly crazy about it because Jeff Zimmerman 
told us that you know these these big workloads don't necessarily have a negative impact on a pitcher. It kind of goes either way. You can find cases where they kind of cratered the next year, and you can find cases where they were as good or better. So there is no one one way that that suggests that the big workload that Madison Bumgarner put on should be a scare for this year. The reason that I was a little bit cool on him. Um, maybe after such a great year was the fact that even last year in a really sharp year, he was still only ninth. Uh, and it was, it was a great season last year. Bumgarner had a 298 ERA in 217 innings with a strikeout per inning. Uh, actually just a couple, a little bit over 219 strikeouts. And that was only good for ninth. And so, you know, those that had him kind of top five, I just didn't necessarily see where that was coming from. Uh, he's kind of repeated here. And like I said, just a little bit higher on the ERA, but everything else is in order. I'm ready to buy, though, because now the perception has kind of shifted on, on Bumgarner. And it's like you can't be hard and fast on these things because the market will change. And I think the market has changed a little bit on, on Bumgarner. Some of that some of that scare from last year has crept in and, and maybe influenced uh, probably too much because they look at the ERA being 333 and think, well, you know, last two years he was under three. He's just more of that 2012 guy or something like that. It's not the case. He's actually got his best skills ever from a strikeout-to-walk standpoint, his 5.3 mark for the year. That, that's a career best after last year's 5.1. Part of that is the environment that we're in, though. The, the strikeout-to-walk ratios are just generally excellent these last uh, couple of years for pitchers. So I don't want to get too hung up on that. I'm just seeing a lot of good out of Bumgarner right now. And, and like I said, the fact that the market has shifted – makes me interested in buying him and and you know you are going to pay it, it's not going to come cheaply you're not going to like I said you're not going to go buy low and and give your Justin Turner for Madison Bumgarner that's not what I'm talking about here but if you can go out and buy him um you know at at, at a markedly cheaper rate than than a Max Scherzer or Clayton Kershaw you know his contemporaries up near the top that's what we're talking about here, because if your your pitching needs help, you need that horse. Um, yeah, you, you could go out and buy Scherzer, and he's going to be great. I think he's going to be absolutely excellent in the second half. But oh my God, the cost! Whereas uh, with Bumgarner, you might not have to pay your your top hitter and something. You might be able to just give a high quality hitter. You know, you might be able to give Justin Upton for Madison Bumgarner in a one for one to a team that that has some hitting issues, um, and and that'd be all. All right. Uh, I'm sure there are plenty of other kind of names that would that would fit in that level that uh, wouldn't get it done for one of the higher level guys. And I mentioned with Bumgarner that he hadn't topped four strikeouts in any of his first three outings. Since then, uh, he's been below six strikeouts just three times in in the span of 15 starts. So, if there were any major concerns that you had for Bumgarner coming in, I, I think he's kind of alleviated those with his pitching. There were, like I said, a handful of ugly outings that have kind of bumped up the ERA, but skills-wise, uh, you should be believing in, in what we're seeing from Bumgarner. Next up is Francisco Liriano. Now, he's one of the guys who's already in the top 30. He's 26th through the first half. And, and the fact is, not many guys can be as overwhelmingly dominant when on as Liriano. You know, in, in, in 2013, he had that epic historical season against lefties. I think he allowed them a, a 340 uh, OPS or something absolutely absurd like that. In 2014, he kind of flipped it. Lefties got some revenge. I think they were up around six, 700 OPS, 700, uh, you know, really 
that that's really high for him uh, because Liriano usually dominates lefties and they kind of flipped it on him. But he was better against righties, so he still had a pretty good season last year in 2014. Well, this year he's destroying both. Um, just looking at weighted on base average, WOBA, if you will. Uh, Francisco Liriano seventh against lefties at 247 and 13th against against righties at 254. I mean, that's elite to be in the top 15 against both sides of the plate there. And that's just overwhelming dominance. And like I said, few can dominate like Liriano when he's on. So I really like him to have a big second half as well. You know, the walks are still there um, on some level. They're kind of always going to be. They're not the way they were when he was, you know, one of the worst pitchers going, walking five per nine. Uh, It's at 3.1 per nine this year for Liriano, which is uh, one of his best since he first broke in, and he was kind of a reliever-starter hybrid when he hit the scene. Um, And then actually looking... 2010 was his best year for Liriano, 2.7 walks per nine. That's the best full year as a starter. This year, 3.1. So he's, you know, he's right around there. He's he's in shouting distance of that walk rate. Um, so we'll we'll see what happens with it. But again, he doesn't have to necessarily uh, be having a great walk rate to be successful because the walks generally don't hurt. Uh, he finds a way to get out of them either via the strikeout uh, or via the ground ball. Liriano has a 54% ground ball rate and a 28% strikeout rate. Those are both absolutely excellent. So the 298 ERA that we've seen from him so far, I think could be a a harbinger of things to come as opposed to something that you would want to run from and maybe sell out of uh, for fear uh, of a breakdown. Uh, Speaking of a breakdown, injury is the, is the, the, Always, you know, the, the ever-present concern with Liriano. Um, he hasn't made 30 starts in a season since that 2010 season that I mentioned. In fact, that's the only season he's done it. 31 starts that year, 192 innings, and a pretty solid season. If I, if I, if I remember correctly, that 362 ERA was, was broken down with a bad first half and, and a great second half for him. I, I think that's how Liriano's 2010 went. But anyway, he's usually good for a DL stint. So that, that's, that's something that, that is worrisome here. But it also kind of gets baked into the price to where you can kind of get him at a discount. You know, he doesn't get treated like an ace level pitcher. A lot of people with scars from from those previous years. And and that's just that's just going to play no matter what. Um, I I got burned by him. I jumped off at one point. I said, I'm not coming back on the Lariano train until he shows me a, a, you know, a substantial period of high quality success. Well, he did that. And so I'm back on. But I understand that there are some folks out there who are, are, are very scared. Again, this influences the price and influences the market. So you can maybe go out and get Liriano for a level that is nowhere near ace, um, and yet he could pitch like an ace for you over the second half. Uh, we saw a massive second half out of Liriano last year, and that doesn't necessarily mean that that he's guaranteed to have one this year, 220 ERA and 86 innings um, in last year's second half. But I like that he's shown that that down the stretch, he can be amazing. Uh, you know, he did, he did miss some time last year, but he still logged 162 innings. That's a relatively full season there with 29 starts, and I think that uh, that we should get at least that again this year, at least 29. Of course, that'd be a disappointment at this point. He's got 18, um, so only 11 w- would be a bit of a bummer. I'm willing to bet, and I've, I've made this point millions of times, I'm willing more to bet on skills and try to just hope that maybe the health kind of sticks with me as opposed to always running from health concerns. This is an elite-level skill set for Francisco Lariano, and there is some gamble that he might not stay healthy. But, you, 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 like I said, if you get that discount built in, that's fine. Then, then enjoy it, take it. If you need pitching help, I think Francisco Lariano could be a great investment.
Next on the list is another guy who's already in the top 30. Uh, in the first half, he finished 25th. But uh, again, I'm betting on him sticking there. That's Michael Waka, a name that you've probably heard me gush about uh, multiple times already this year. But I'm, I'm, I'm going back to the well with it. And I think it's deserved. Michael Waka is having a fantastic season, and I, I generally expect it to continue. That's the that's the whole point here. Um, you know, when we're talking about somebody who's already in the top 30, I, I'm just expecting uh, continued success, and, and perhaps maybe in a different way. You know, Waka ha- has had a bit of an interesting season. He had a 2.09 ERA through his first six starts, but the skills were soft. Um, and and you know, I saw that. Obviously, somebody I've been following all year. I, have big, big plans for Waka this year. I've been really big expectations for him. So the 354 uh, fielding independent pitching FIP was, you know, not great. But I thought that I thought the strikeouts would come. The stuff was still there. It still looked good. Uh, there was still high quality stuff. There were still uh, swings and misses here and there, but just not consistently. He wasn't he wasn't utilizing the strikeout uh, effectively. And so, you know he was still having success because he was inducing a ton of weak contact, uh, quality defense behind him, and of course the W's were there because the Cardinals are awesome. So you know Waka on the surface looked great early on, but I think everyone paying attention knew that there had to be a skills change here uh, or or rather you know had they had to come to the fore or that ERA was going to go by the wayside and and of course uh, the ERA has in fact gone up but not because the skills have have not been there and in fact the skills have definitely turned around for Michael Waka uh, in the 11 starts since he has a 341 ERA but 67 strikeouts and a 4-2 strikeout to walk ratio in 68 and two-thirds innings of work that's good for a 281 FIP at that point so you know he's got an 11% swing strike rate in these last 11 starts that's a top 20 level kind of rate that is the swing and miss that you need to be an effective strikeout pitcher and and to eclipse the you know get into the least the low 20s if not something near that 25% rate that we saw from Waka back in his awesome 2013 debut right now he's at 19.6% so right it up we'll call it 20 that's fine that that can work and in fact I think that even if he's quote-unquote only at that level only at 20% with a 6% walk rate he can still put up the kind of ERA that gets him in the top 30 for the second half the fact is I think the skills can be even better which adds to my confidence of a high quality uh, big-time ERA like that so I'm still big on Waka I haven't changed on him at all. Very excited uh, by what, what we've already seen in the first half. He was my NL Cy Young pick. I still think there's a chance for it. Obviously, he's not the front runner right now. There's several guys probably that he would have to eclipse, but you know, these are one in the second half anyway. Nothing's guaranteed. We saw, you know, Kluber win his down the stretch. Uh, you know, Waka's going to have all the opportunities because he's got the skills, uh, he's got the and he's got the team. That, that That's that's crucial, especially if you're in a tight race. Uh, and I'm actually, I'm I'm, you know, I'm kind of okay with that. If we're talking about two guys that are kind of neck and neck, and um, you know, just for the sake of argument, let's say you know one is Cole Hamels on Philly, and and the other is Michael Walker on St. Louis. If they're neck and neck in in WAR and in, in FIP and their ERA and, and strikeout rate, all that sort of stuff, I would lean to the toward the guy who's doing it in the more pressure packed situation with the better club, et cetera, et cetera. But just saying that you have to be on a winning club to get these kinds of awards, I don't necessarily agree with. If you're just the best player, 
overall flat out then uh then it doesn't matter you know especially if you're if you're somebody with you know like a two war lead over the next best guy that at that point it's a substantial difference and it doesn't really matter what team you're on i know that everyone's opinions differ in terms of uh team as it relates to the awards um either way I think Waka has a real shot at the Cy Young, and so I'm sticking with him. He's definitely somebody I'm still going out there inquiring. I don't think that he'll come cheaply. Uh, there's no way. There's no way you can look at those bottom line numbers as a fantasy owner and, and give this guy away. But at the same time, uh, Michael Waka is not some household name as some ace that uh, that is going to demand, you know, again, high-level returns that are that are going to hurt your team more in the long run than, than getting Waka would. And in fact, you know, because that's, that's how it could be with a Scherzer, that's how it could be with a Kershaw, is that you might give away more than you're actually gaining in the pitching. Waka gives you an opportunity to maybe get that kind of elite-level pitching without giving such a such a massive price tag so again maybe look to uh to to acquire him via trade and who knows maybe the the team manager that has him is thinking i gotta move out of this because uh i i've gotten i've gotten enough i've gotten 107 innings which is exactly how many innings waka had last year by the way i've gotten enough innings of a 293 era I will go ahead and sell Waka, and I won't necessarily ask for full price or something. Maybe you get lucky there. But even at market value, even at a rate that seems commensurate more with these numbers, I'd still be willing to buy him because I believe that he can continue it. So Michael Waka's next guy on the list there. That's Bumgarner, Liriano, and Waka. And we're talking about pitchers that, uh, again, could just have big second halves, maybe that aren't necessarily as prominent on the radar uh, right now in terms of they're standing out, they're at the All-Star Game, etc. Again, some of these guys are, but uh, a lot of them, especially as we kind of move further down the list here, aren't. And they're going to be guys that you can go out and get at a cheaper price and, and maybe turn your season around. These first three guys, you're going to pay for them, but they're going to give you that high-level production. Um, and so don't be afraid to pay the price because you need the pitching, but make sure your pitching need is pretty severe to go out and get a Bumgarner, Liriano, and Waka at what they'll cost right now. Moving on, uh, let's get our first AL guy on the board, and then Michael Pineda. Again, another guy that I've been backing pretty much since the year started, so probably not a surprise to have him on this list. Pineda's been interesting, if not remarkably annoying with his season. Uh, It's just been very frustrating to kind of watch him get his clock cleaned uh, with such regularity, and he just needs to iron out these shellackings, uh, just getting crushed multiple times. He's been pasted for five-plus earned runs four different times, including eight runs versus Philly. Dude, what? I mean, three and a third, 11 hits, eight runs against Philly. That was crazy. That was on June 22nd, so that was pretty recently. Um, and I think Mike Franco busted him up pretty bad in that one, and then just singles, singles, singles. I think there were only two or three extra base hits of those 11. So he just got singled to death, and that'll do it. Um, but, you know, that's not just bad luck either. You can't just write that off, even if some of them were BABIP. That's just not that's not all bad luck that at some point you're not you're not hitting your spots uh you're leaving too many hittable pitches and they're taking advantage there in philly so but when he's on he's so good michael pineda has a 25 percent strikeout rate and a 50 percent ground ball rate you gotta love that mix i mean just to give you an idea listen 
every pitcher is going to have some of these shellackings, and that's basically what I call anything that's a, a five or more earned run outing. Because honestly, even if you pitch nine innings, you still had a five ERA. So you, you can't run away from from five earned runs. So I just say anything five earned runs is a shellacking. He's got four of them I mentioned. If you just remove the Philly one, the eight earned runs in three and a third inning, his ERA goes from, I think, 364 uh, to 304. He cuts 0.6 runs right off of it there. Uh, and you can't do that, obviously. You can't just pick and choose. But it but it, it shows you just how dominant he's been at times. More often than not, to be honest, that that's what we're dealing with uh, with Pineda here. Because, again, he still has a 364 despite having four shellackings on his record. Um, the walk rate's great. You know, th- this this is a new thing from him starting last year. Obviously, he's been hurt for so long, has Pineda, that we haven't really had a chance to see him evolve or or be what he is but last year he came back the strikeouts were down but the walks were way down to compensate but he was still a, a fly ball pitcher well you know I think he's realized his new park fly ball pitcher you might not want to do that he's become a ground ball pitcher turned the strikeouts back up and maintained the elite level walk rate so I'm very pleased with a lot of what we're seeing from Pineda he just needs to iron out the fact that you cannot give up five earned runs Every couple of weeks in an outing. I mean, uh, a couple of those a year, sure. You know, everyone seems to have at least a couple. It's very rare that a guy gets through with zero uh, by taking 32 turns in the rotation. So I'm fine with, with four maybe for the year, but he's already got four. Pineda really needs to cut those out. And if he can maybe just limit it to one or two more the rest of the year, he can have that elite level ERA to go with the skills and the way the Yankees are playing. Plus, I think they'll add uh, the pieces should be there. Plus, we love that bullpen uh, to get the wins as well. He already got nine with some of the ups and downs that he had in this first half. I could see another nine uh, coming up. You know, we, we don't get too crazy projecting wins, but the, the way to set yourself up is to get high-quality starters on good teams uh, with both good bullpens and good offense. You know, I'm not sure the Yankees' offense is necessarily elite, but it's been it's been pretty solid, and that bullpen is definitely elite. So that is going to set somebody up like uh, somebody like Pineda up to get the W's, as long especially if he's pitching up to his level. Next up is Carlos Carrasco, and he's probably kind of the the poster boy for this in terms of like a buy low situation. But again, that term gets thrown out a lot, um, and I'm not sure that it's as it, – it, here's the thing. It's so much easier to say than it is to do because, you know, a lot of guys are paying attention out there. You don't get into a fantasy baseball league uh, most times if you're not going to pay attention or if you if you don't know what's going on, at least on some level. Now, I'm, I'm sure you guys got people in your home leagues out there that uh, maybe aren't as up-to-date as you are and they're not checking fan graphs and they're not listening to podcasts, et cetera, et cetera. I'm just talking in, in most leagues, most competitive leagues, where uh, you know everyone's fighting tooth and nail for every point. It's down to the wire. You're playing your head-to-head. you got your crazy playoffs, et cetera, et cetera. Whatever kind of league with people paying attention, they understand that Carlos Carrasco's 407 ERA is not an indication of who he is, um, even if they're not going second-level stats and looking at FIP and all that sort of stuff. They've, they've probably uh, saw his near-no-hitter. Uh, or they've watched some of his outings where he's, you know, truly dominant, like his his season debut when he steamrolled through Houston. Um, you know, a couple times where he's gone very deep into games. Uh, I remember the uh, 
he smoked my Tigers once. You know, a handful, several of his outings, several of Carlos Carrasco's 18 outings could be plucked out as examples that even just more of a casual fan, but who cares about his fantasy league and stays in, uh, up to date with it, could understand that Carlos Carrasco's ERA is not an indication of how he's actually pitching in his talent. So with, with that aside, uh, with that buy low sort of uh, tangent aside, let's talk about Carrasco. His 274 FIP at fielding independent pitching, that's tied with Garrett Cole as the 12th best in baseball. Garrett Cole is a surefire, you know, front of the rotation stud. This is a guy that you're going out, if you're desperate for pitching, that you're going to go out and get, and you're going to expect greatness from. And the the skills, the skills indicators, independent of the fielding around them, suggest that Carrasco has been pitching every bit as good uh, as Cole, and that's huge. That means Carrasco's more or less panning out to the loftiest of expectations that he had coming into the year, but the ERA just isn't there to match yet. Some of that is his fault, though. It's not just bad luck. Now, they've had a defensive issue. This is why fielding independent pitching numbers do work very well for a team like the Indians and uh, a team we're going to cover later, the White Sox, who, who have a candidate for this list as well, um, because they've got such poor fielding that you do kind of want to get a, a glimpse of how are the skills working that if we got this fielding in check, what what could we expect? And it seems like if the, with the fielding in check in Cleveland, we could expect an elite-level Carlos Carrasco. He's got elite strikeouts, walks, swinging strike rates. All three of those are great. He's, he's got a plus-level ground ball rate at 48%. And I bet you, and this is speculation, but I bet you that it's not elite level as a response to the aforementioned defense. I think that some of the problems that they've been having with that with that Indians defense that was really hampering Corey Kluber earlier in the year, Trevor Bowers felt the effects, Danny Salazar's felt the effects. I'm sure their filling guys like Sean Markham have felt the effects. You know, you name it. Maybe Cody Anderson's the only one who hasn't felt the effects. Aha, but there's a key. Cody Anderson just got called up. Very recently, in the middle of June, uh, they had two other key call-ups, Francisco Lindor and Giovanni Urshela, and they have become the new left side of the infield with Lindor at short, Urshela at third. That immediately turns the tide of the Cleveland defense because these two both are glove-first prospects. Lindor is supposed to be elite. Urshel is supposed to be high quality with a solid bat uh, to go with it. So neither of them is really hitting right now, Urshel and Lindor, but their impact is being felt because all of a sudden you don't have Jose Ramirez and Lonnie Chisenhall playing defense over there and mucking up a bunch of ground balls that this that this remarkably good pitching staff is capable of inducing. So even though we look at a 48% season-long ground ball rate for Carrasco, it's up to 51% since the two call-ups have come up, since Lindor and Urshela have been full-time starters for him. Carlos Carrasco's at 51% ground ball rate, which is just a stone's throw from last year's 53% mark. So I do think that he will continue to trust the ground ball again uh, as a response to the to the new defense, and that should definitely help his results. Now, I mentioned it's not all their fault. You can't just say bad defense, Carrasco should have a sub-3 ERA. Some of it's been his own inconsistency, inconsistency that plagued him for years, basically leading up to last year in the first place. I mean, this is a former blue-chip prospect who took till 27 to finally bust out, um, and it, you know, it, it required a bullpen 
stint where he kind of figured some things out, got in the rotation last year, had that amazing finish to the year, and he's been good this year. The results haven't all been there, but if you get beyond the ERA, you still got 10 Ws, you got a 1-9, excuse me, a 1-1-9 whip, and 122 strikeouts in 108 innings. So spare me your stories of how Carlos Carrasco is ruining your team uh, because his ERA is 407. I understand that it's not helping you that it's 407, but in no world is he hurting your team. Um, Just even with that poor ERA, poor compared to the elite level guys, Carrasco's the 25th best starting pitcher on ESPN's player rater. I mean, that, that tells you all you need to know right now. So you know, buying low, that that's probably a mirage with him. If you can, great. Absolutely do it. But again, I'm buying even at market value. I'm just trying to acquire Carrasco, and I'm seeing what it costs. I don't really uh, have to get some sort of sneak deal for me to want to acquire Carrasco. I think there's a chance for him to be, you know, kind <laughs> It's I'm, it's hard to say that he could be that guy that we saw down the stretch last year because it was just it was really absurd. I mean, he had 10 starts of a 1.30 ERA, but it is in there, and that's why I love Carrasco. Next guy on the list, you might actually have a chance at buying at something of a discounted rate. See, I can't even say buy low on him. It's Tyson Ross um, because I you know I still don't know that. Even though it's, it feels kind of like an underwhelming return that 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 uh, that you've gotten out of Ross, I'm still not sure that somebody's going to be giving him away necessarily because, you know, that he's not the reason your team is losing if if you have him on a team that's failing. Uh, he's certainly hurting you in WHIP with a 140 mark, but everything else, we'll take it. Um, we didn't really know if the Padres would be good or not. I was among those who thought, yeah, they, they should be pretty good. I put them second in that division. Um, and, and so the six wins, eh, you know, give or take. You know, I think we all know that even if you thought they were going to be a good team, that you wouldn't be able to uh, guarantee that you were going to get wins anyway. So so that's fine. Um, a 25% strikeout rate in, in 110 innings. So he's got uh, almost a stri- – or excuse me – over a strikeout per inning with 118. So that's fantastic. And he might have the best combination of ground ball and strikeout rate with a 63% ground ball rate and 25% strikeout rate. That is so fantastic. And that's why he's been able to outrun a 12% walk rate and still post a 334 ERA. So, you know, don't, again, spare me that Tyson Ross is killing your team. He might be underperforming you know, to what you thought the top level production was going to be, but this was definitely in the in the level of potential outcomes that you had to be willing to take on when you drafted Ross. You know, and the fact of it is we, that we've seen with another guy that we talked about, Francisco Liriano, a great starting pitcher can outrun a lot of walks. Uh, I, I guess that sounds kind of funny because I said outrun a lot of walks, but you know what I mean? He can, he can get beyond a a whole bunch of walks in terms of it it massively impacting his ERA because he can get the strikeout, get that key double play. They both, both Ross and Lariano have that uh, ground ball 
piece to their game so they can get that double play when it matters or just get the strikeout and don't even let it get into play. So, you know, there, there's a lot that they can do um, even with the walks. And, and I think that's evidence in both, both of their first halves. But Ross's specifically, the fact that he's still got a 334 ERA, I mean, what would happen if he curbed the walks at all? What if he got back to last year's 9% mark, something that he held for the last two years, in fact, before this year, 2013 and 2014, Tyson Ross was at a 9% walk rate, and he posted ERAs of 317 and 281, both of which, actually, I think I said 315 was the cutoff for the first half uh, uh, ERA leaders there, so maybe a 317 wouldn't make it, but a 281 certainly would, and for a half, I definitely think Tyson Ross is somebody who can get hot, uh, I almost said get hot, get hot and, and really take off, so Definitely somebody I'm interested in getting uh, Tyson Ross there for for the Padres. And again, you might actually be able to get something of a discount there compared to what you think he should be worth. Again, I guess it's all relative. If you if you think he should be worth player X and this guy gives takes him for player Z, then yeah, you got him for, for discounts, particularly in your eyes. So uh, one weird thing about Ross is that he's yet to maximize that home park either. Tyson Ross just has a 450 ERA through 40 innings there um, in San Diego this year. So, you know, he could still turn it around just by pitching better at home. He's generally a better home pitcher, so uh, I'm sure there's some weirdness there. I'm not sure why, although I do know that Padres, uh, Petco Park hasn't necessarily been playing as a total, total, total pitcher's haven this year, so maybe that's that's part of it. But Ross had a 188 ERA at home last year, and uh, I can't remember what he had last, uh, the year before that, 2013. Actually, let me look it up. He had a... 203 there in, in, in 2013. So Ross has been excellent in Petco before. He's not been so good there this year. Maybe that alone can spark him for a big uh, second half run. But I think the skills are there for Tyson Ross to be elite. Next up is Jeff Samarja. I hinted at him earlier because I was talking about defenses and how they play a role both for the White Sox and the Indians. Uh, the White Sox the most because they, they have a they have a really good staff as well, and it has just been smothered by their awful defense and we, we've seen it throughout the year they've they've taken strides to make improvements you know Carlos Sanchez getting called up and being inserted in the lineup the fact that he's not hitting anything and yet he's still playing because of the defense that he brings it's been a trade-off that they've been willing to make in Chicago um, Samarja got off to a really weird start and I think the defense definitely plays into it 94 hits in his first 80 and a third innings that's 12 starts I mean that this is the league's worst defense um at second worst at best maybe Phillies is worst but the White Sox defense is terrible um and and we're just seeing Samarja get better though so maybe the defense is tightening up or maybe he's figuring out ways to kind of work around it uh because I definitely think that they're part of the reason he has a 9-3 uh 9.3 hits per nine Samarja's just he's better than the results that we've been seeing and you know he's giving up so many high hit counts early 8-8-10 12, 10, 10. I mean, these are huge. This kind of he's not supposed to be this hittable. Um, and I, I think some of it is that his defense wasn't turning easier outs, 
into those outs. And so, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of BABIP kind of hits, if you will. Again, not not all of it. You don't just look at it and say, oh, he's bad, bad luck. Everything else is fine. Some of it was Samarja's fault, too, compounding mistakes, not putting away hitters. And it's not like his BABIP is 390 or anything either. It's 313. It's just that the defense was certainly not helping him. It was coming at a lot of inopportune times. And it's kind of throwing things off. And, you know, he's another guy who's kind of lost sight of the, the ground ball. He had he had really morphed into a ground ball pitcher, 48 and 50% the last two years for Samarja. This year, just 40%. And like, as with Carrasco, I wonder how much of that is related to the defense and him saying, you know what, I can't just put it on the ground and let them get it because they're not going to get it. So um, I'm sure there's some frustration there with Samarja. I think the skills remain uh, at a level that, that can definitely be elite. For sure. Uh, he had a 10% or better swinging strike rate in just four of his first 10 starts. He's now done it in six of his last eight, and he hasn't been below 9% in any of those eight starts. Um, and, and, you know, a 9-10% swinging strike rate for Samarja at, at, in, as a kind of a low level, that's excellent. I mean, that, for anyone, that's excellent. If, you're, if that's kind of your low mark, 9%. That's fantastic because he's putting in games of 15, 17. That's devastating. And and a lot of that for Samarja is the splitter. The splitter is really finally coming back around and becoming that kind of huge pitch for Samarja, that swing and, uh, swing and miss kind of pitch, the put-away pitch, if you will. And I mentioned earlier that he was having some issues putting guys away, and now, now we're finally seeing that more. The strikeouts are turning up. Uh, the hits are finally going down. And, and maybe even the ground ball rate is coming back because because, you know, we look just over at his last five starts. Uh, he's got a 57%, a 53%, a 48%. The other two are 39 and 44%. But, you know, if he's finally starting to trust it a little bit more that he, that he can, you know, get these easier ones on the ground to his uh, defense and they're going to turn them confidently for him, then we've seen Samarja be able to put up a 50% ground ball rate. And if you pair that with the big strikeout rates that he's capable of too – all of a sudden, you're off and running. And, and again, it, it's not a stretch to say that he can have a huge ERA season. He had a 299 ERA for 220 innings last year. So I'm not even necessarily going out on a limb here, nor am I, nor am I claiming to be. I'm just saying that, uh, again, as we get further down this list, too, these guys are more and more attainable at probably a better price. Samarja... Unless you're trading with me, I think you got to be able to get a discount. I I, I love him. I, I'm I'm hanging on where I've got him anyway, because especially since, since he's starting to come out of it. But I'm sure there are some leagues out there uh, where that 402 ERA, you know, and, and only a, a 20% strikeout rate. So it's not like he's got the strikeouts coming off the page necessarily jumping. I think that that this is a scenario that sets up to where you might actually be able to get uh, a, a rather substantial discount for what Jeff Samarja, sh you know, would have cost last year compared to what he costs this year. Um, now there's the threat of trade. I guess that only matters for AL only league where, where, you know, you lose them if they if they leave leagues, but I wouldn't worry about that necessarily. Um, I don't think that the White Sox are going to sell. I guess that he would be a decent candidate to sell, even if they were going to kind of do the retooling thing where they they trade somebody like Samarja, but they actually get pieces to help this year's team as opposed to, you know, just punting and getting, you know, prospects for next year or something like that. So uh, either way, I'm still interested in acquiring him. I think Jeff Samarja could be huge. And I didn't put Jose Quintana on the list because, uh, you know, I just don't know that that he can have the kind of that 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 huge run, that huge 14, 15 start run of a, a sub three ERA. 
but uh, he is somebody I would look to acquire because I, I, I think that the, the market as a whole, the community, the fantasy community as a whole, still undervalues this guy. And so in more leagues than not, you'd be able to get him uh, for a quality price. So again, he's not an official entrant of this list because he isn't necessarily a top 30 ERA candidate, but I'd definitely be interested in him. Next guy up on the list is Eduardo Rodriguez. And he's had a very interesting rookie campaign so far. Came out, made a huge splash initially, big start at Texas, fantastic, dominates Minnesota, goes into Baltimore. You know, three starts in, he had a .44 ERA with 21 strikeouts. So, I mean, it was 21 strikeouts in 20 and two-thirds innings uh, for Rodriguez. It was great. Well, you know, Toronto came into Boston and and knocked him around. Nine earned in four and two-thirds. Toronto, the best hitting team against lefties, and a young lefty kind of getting his first taste of failure in the majors. Well, you know, that, then he followed it up with a great start in Kansas City. And I think uh, the start after that, he got beaten up by Baltimore. Six earned in three and two-thirds. I think it was during that start that uh, they highlighted that he was tipping his pitches. In the following start after that, so this is now his seventh start for Eduardo Rodriguez. Um, and this is, you know, two bad ones in his last three People are kind of getting rocky on him. What do we do? He's headed to Toronto after the uh, after the Baltimore outing, so it's like terrifying. Well, that's where they found the pitch tipping, like I said, in the Baltimore outing. So by that time, obviously, they'd worked on it. And in Toronto, he goes out and drops six innings of one-run ball with just four hits, two walks, and four strikeouts. A huge follow-up in Toronto against a team that had already ripped him and is best against lefties. So I thought that was just kind of a statement game there, insofar as you can really have one when you're seven games into your career. But bouncing back like that, your second time against the club. Now, he'd already faced a team for the second time. That was his uh, when Baltimore crushed him. It was their second time. Uh, but I still like that. He faced a really difficult team for a second time and, and got better. Um, and so ostensibly that pitch tipping issue has been corrected. Again, it, it was highlighted in his sixth start against Baltimore when they popped him for six runs. Since then, he's allowed just four runs and three starts, 17 in the third innings for Eduardo Rodriguez, 14 strikeouts, and just five walks. So he's been great since then. That's with a tr- that trip to Toronto and then home against Houston and New York, two teams that do very well against lefties. Uh, so that that's, that's pretty good stuff right there. I really like what we're seeing from Eduardo Rodriguez. The real concern here, if there is one, first off, it's just rookies in general. They're, you know, they're going to be a concern because they're young, they're volatile. We don't necessarily know what we're getting. But if there's a, an other concern that isn't just kind of the unknown, it's the fact that well, we don't really know what kind of innings count we're going to get. Uh, Rodriguez threw 120 innings last year in the Baltimore and Boston systems. This year, he's already at a, right at 100 between Triple A Pawtucket and the majors. So you know. How far are they going to push it with him? They need – Boston absolutely needs Rodriguez right now, though, because their pitching staff is terrible. If they have any shot at this, you know, they're five under uh, at 42 and 47, but they're still right in the thick of it, and they've got enough 
high quality pieces that they probably should stay in, in the thick of it. But they're going to need somebody like Rodriguez to kind of be that that frontliner, at least a, a reasonable facsimile of. I think he can. I think the skills that we're seeing out of him, we've seen him, you know, get the swings and misses. We've seen him win with ground balls. You know, nothing has been overwhelming that we've seen from Rodriguez's profile. But I do think that we, we have a good chance to get a big run out of him in the second half. Now, I think some of you are probably going to wonder why I didn't include, uh, why I would include Rodriguez, or excuse me, uh, yeah, Rodriguez over somebody like a Noah Syndergaard, who's, you know, ostensibly been better across the board. For me, I, it's a concern that Boston is going, or excuse me, New York is going to be more cautious with Syndergaard than Boston will be with uh, with Rodriguez. Syndergaard threw, uh, you know, 133 innings last year. He's got, let's see, 30. He's got a 97 right now. The thing of it is, though, they're already kind of six-manning their rotation when they can. Now, Steven Matz got hurt, so they, they can't do that uh, for a little bit. But they, they're already clear about being cautious with their young arms. I have a concern also, even though I did pick them to be a wild card team, I do have some concern that New York might fall out of the race, the Mets, that is. And if they do, that's going to give them all the more uh, reason to kind of be cautious with uh, w- with Syndergaard. So we'll, we'll see, though, because they are just two games back of the Nationals. They're certainly not going to fold up. You know, They're not going to sell or anything like that. But are they going to have enough offense to kind of stick around? Uh, that's kind of going to kind of be the key for the Mets. So, you know, I guess Syndergaard could be on the list because he does have the skills to 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 be that electric as well. Um, but I, I chose Rodriguez because I, I just thought, first off, I think he'll be easier to acquire. Um, obviously, in keeper leagues, it's going to be you know virtually impossible to get either of them. So we're talking redraft here. But I guess Syndergaard probably belongs to. If I'm if I'm going to include Rodriguez, maybe maybe I should just do both. I'm kind of I'm kind of flipping here, and saying that uh, maybe I should have just included both. Whichever rookie you can acquire more easily, let that be the one that you get it. But I think both Rodriguez and Syndergaard, as long as they've got the innings to go for it, um, have the have the skill level to to be that top 30 level kind of ERA pitcher in the second half. All right, then the last guy that I'm going to talk about is a little bit more of a uh, out there one, and this this is it's meant to be somebody that you know you can probably get freely in a lot of leagues, or somebody that you can definitely get on the cheap, more of a wild card. Obviously, the second that you hear the name, some of you are going to be like, "Yeah, right, get real." It's Jorge De La Rosa. I know, the 34-year-old lefty playing for the Colorado Rockies. But uh, stick with me here. He's got some really intriguing skills. Now, he's got a 434 ERA so far this year, which is is not great, but it's it's not too bad considering where he pitches. The weird thing is is that De La Rosa for years, or maybe just maybe just a couple of years, maybe not like multiple years. I, I, I don't want to overstate it without looking at it. But for I think a couple of years in a row, it looked like he had kind of uh, figured out Coors a little bit. He'd had some, some real success there uh, for a decent sample of time. And in fact, just looking at his composite numbers right now, he's got uh, 490 innings of a 419 ERA there. So yeah, you know, it has kind of been for years. But the last two years specifically coming into this, this year, he had 82 innings of a 2.76 ERA, and then 91 innings of a 3.08 ERA in Coors. So, for whatever reason, there, there was a lot of success for De La Rosa in Coors Field. Well, this year he's at a 6.29 with a 1.71 WHIP. 
Uh, he's got more than a strikeout per inning, 47 in 44 innings, but 26 walks. So he's a he's at a sub two strikeout to walk ratio there. Um, so it, you know he's obviously going to have to improve at home to get anywhere near what I'm talking about here with a big ERA second half. But he does have a 165 ERA on the road with a uh, 102 WHIP. So things on the road are working. That will probably the, those numbers will probably go up, but they can be offset if he brings those home numbers to something more in line. Maybe not with exactly what we saw the last two years when he was basically a lead at home, but even if he puts up like a 330 at home, that'd be fantastic. And then he can do kind of the the big damage on the road uh, and put up you know like a 250. Again, this is kind of you know, 90th percentile level Jorge De La Rosa here, but he can miss bats. He keeps the ball down. I mean there. There's a lot to like in his skills here. I just I, I I think that if if Jorge Del Rosa were in a different park, he'd he'd be he'd get a lot more hype. That's for sure. And and that's fair because Coors Field is remarkably difficult. But again, he's shown in the past that he can kind of have some success there. Uh, he's lost that a little bit this year. But then if you look at three of his last four at home, have been really good. The other one was really bad against Milwaukee. Six earned with five uh, excuse me, uh, eleven hits, five innings, but the other ones, St. Louis, seven innings, two runs. Arizona, five innings, one run. Atlanta, six innings, two runs. Not too bad. So if he's moving in that path for success at home, then Dale Rosa, uh, I think, can be kind of one of those sneaky guys who finishes in the top 30 for ERA in the first half and ends up being kind of like uh, th- this this first half's uh, Chris Heston or Jesse Chavez or Ubaldo Jimenez. Probably Ubaldo would, would be the, the the best comp of those. But, you know, the guy on there that you don't really – you're kind of surprised to see, and, and all those guys are, are currently on there. So we'll, we'll, see, we'll see what happens. But that, that's kind of my off-the-wall one that you get uh, with Jorge De La Rosa. And so that, that'll finish up the list and, and Tuesday's episode of the podcast. Again, I'll run down the names, and these are guys I think are, are well positioned to have a huge second half. Uh, you know, capable of jumping in that top 30 and having that elite level ERA in the second half. Madison Bumgarner, Francisco Liriano, Michael Waka, Michael Pineda, Carlos Carrasco, Tyson Ross, Jeff Samarja, Eduardo Rodriguez, and Jorge De La Rosa. As I mentioned, I will be back on Thursday, very very likely with a guest. There's, I guess a small chance that it doesn't come through, but very likely with a guest. Until then, take care.